Hey, welcome! This episode is my conversation with Mikhail Arnaldi. He is the author of EffectAS, a functional programming library for TypeScript inspired by Zio from Scala World. He is also the creator of TS Plus, a new TypeScript superset language. In the conversation, we were exploring EffectAS, FPTS, and the vision how both libraries are working towards unifying the ecosystem. We have also talked about why TS Plus was created and what improvements it brings to TypeScript. I hope you will find useful insights from this conversation. And now, here's Michael Arnaldi. So you wanted to know how, how I came to the field. And the real answer is I, ne I never really chose to be an, an engineer. That kind of ended up being the natural extension of what I was doing. When I was around about 13 years old, my father bought the first computer that I've ever seen. And he kind of explained to me that the, the things I was seeing in the, in the screen were not all pre-made and fixed, but you could actually program a computer to, to do whatever the hell you want. And that to, to a child sounds like a game. So that's, that's actually how I started for pure fun purposes when I was 13 years old. And when I was going to school, I ended up by, by chance in a, in a class where talking with the professor um, of mathematics, he knew that there was a local company that needed a custom software and they, they couldn't find anyone to actually build them. The, the software at a, at a cheaper price and you know it was a small place, small company. And so he suggested to me, a 14-year-old kid, to go to this company and, and, and introduce myself saying, look, professor sent me and I think you need a software developer and I want to try. And that ended up being the first commercial application that I shipped, which by total surprise, it's still in usage today. That was like, I was 14, I'm 30, I'm 31. So <laughs> calculate the time was quite quite a long time ago. And, and that was kind of my intro, uh, my intro to the field. Uh, since then, I've, I've been both studying and kind of working side by side, not, not in a very specific way at some point. Uh, after high school, I decided to try mathematics in, in university, kind of did three years. At the third year, I, I realized, well, I, it's not that the, at the third year I realized, it's more that I never went to the university with the with the aim to, to kind of finish the university. I went to the university with the aim of learning whatever I needed, whatever I felt I needed. So I kind of done a little bit of mathematics, little bit of economics, little bit of different things. And when I felt that I, I had enough kind of training by my standard, not by, by university standard, I, I dropped out and I funded uh, a company that was exploring the blockchain space. But it was like when I was 20, 21 years old, 22 years old. So that's that's a long time ago. Uh, we were at the very beginning, and it wasn't even clear if the if the technology was was useful to anything or or not. So the the company was kind of more a research type of company with potentially a product idea. 
um, that's how I left university and ended up being in the actual startup space trying to trying to build products. And given I was a founder, I was always in the positions to kind of deciding the technologies that had to be used. Uh, I was by all means not not ready, and the, I, I could. I always say at some point I, I should write a book how to fail with unlimited funding, because for my startup I had unlimited funding. I had a, a, the co-founder of mine was. Um, yeah, I'm not gonna share precise names, but he was a very wealthy, uh, wealthy individual that could fund pretty much any any expense and had a network to potentially raise more funds in case it was it was necessary. So he kind of told me like, you don't really have an upper bound. Please keep it as as lean as possible. We don't we don't want to throw away money, but money's here not not so much of a problem. We have to be cheap, we have to be lean and mean, but if we have a product, if we have a way, if we if we know we can scale this thing, we funding is not a problem. Well we ended up failing anyway, and which is <laughs> kind of an interesting uh, an interesting story. But that's how I ended up looking for what I would call highly productive technologies. Technologies that can work in a small team, technologies that can lead to a large outcome with not so much complexity to deal with. Because when when you are a startup, you don't really have large teams. You can't really afford to have a too much complexity in the, in, in in a small system. Because you don't you don't have the team to bear this type of complexity and and functional programming is a it's kind of a Swiss a Swiss knife in 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 the space because it definitely allows you to do things better. At the time, the functional programming was very at, at the very beginning of industry industrial options, so there was nothing like today FPTS or or these types of libraries. You, you mean uh, you mean in TypeScript ecosystem or like in, in general, broader, in, like a, even like in a broader, in general? yeah, in a, in a broader sense that that company had had a backend at the, at the time running on a mixture of C++ and, and Golang because uh, it was blockchain driven. So it had a lot of hashing signatures and, and stuff like that, that required CPU intensive things. And at the time, TypeScript wasn't even here. TypeScript has turned. 10 years old to the yesterday actually and uh, the startup was older than 10 years so typescript came around about half life of that startup and we adopted typescript because we realized it was a, was a great technology since the very since the very beginning but it was kind of uh, I, I would say embryonal it was really 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 early stage for the thing the the elements of functional programming that we were using were mostly around architecture in in the backend because you know at, at the end functional programming is really about programming with data and pure functions you can do that in, in multiple ways you don't need to have extremely refined frameworks you can still do it on a on a plain and normal language it's harder you can do less things but still trying to follow follow the principle 
and at the time as i said was very very early stage on on anything clearly as i said that that startup kind of um, well it didn't end up failing we, we ended up putting the startup on hold because we realized the underlying technology which is the blockchain doesn't doesn't really solve any of the problems we were trying to solve with the technology so we said unless something major changes in the in the underlying technology it doesn't really make sense to continue researching on that because we we were not able to solve any of the well we were able to build some prototypes but any prototype we were building did not outperform in any in any sense the equivalent without using uh, using the the blockchain technology so um, that's actually where i kind of lost my <laughs> my initial love for for that type of technology and and kind of moved on yeah i mean blockchain is an interesting technology in terms of it trades off uh, performance for 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 kind of um, uh, distribution right and uh, I, I there are, I guess, I mean, in my opinion, there are uh, use cases where it works, but but those use cases are usually very, uh, very kind of limited, right? And even even if I look at different projects which are currently active on the on blockchain, especially those that kind of um, it is interesting to see how. Uh, different blockchain platforms uh, start to move more towards decentralization to, to centralization and the reason why they are doing this it seems like they are doing this is because it is cheaper to run in more centralized with a more centralized database right and because uh, there is no kind of they are not selling themselves as the, the decentralized thing, right? They usually sell it as a smart contract or some some other thing, and they try to compete with other platforms like this, similar. It tends to move more and more towards centralization and uh, towards cheaper prices because consumer uh, at the end will you will uh, choose the more like the cheaper option, right? The cheaper, Unless the fastest. The the the, yes. the easier and, and it is much faster. That's true. And and also from yes. from the and consumer perspective, there is a there is a huge safety risk in directly using blockchains. The idea that your keys are the unique access to your capital, your tokens, your assets is a double-edged sword. On one side, you are the only one having the keys. On the other side, if you lose the keys, you've lost. And that, for a consumer, is not is not a very good property to have. So uh, any any adoptable system will will end up having a centralized way of storing the keys, which defeats the purpose of of that type I, of. I, I think it. I think it is the same thing. It is not like it doesn't work, like even like private keys, like not your keys, not your coin, right? The thing. Uh, I mean. It doesn't work for all the cases, right? If a person like 70 years old, they will not store their own keys because it will be gone. But you should not <laughs> even if you have 20 years old. 
Because if you have anything of value there and you die the day after, nobody has access to your money. That's gone. There are, me- there are mechanisms uh, to my understanding to do it in terms of like multi-seek and stuff like this, if you kind of die-die and yeah, but um, I mean, as as with everything in life and as with pretty much all technologies, there are use cases where when it could be used and there are use cases where it doesn't really bring much benefit, right? Yeah, but usually and... from, a, from a consumer perspective, if you like, use an Apple uh, machine, you use a Windows, you use your smartphone, you, you, you use any, any piece of technology from a consumer perspective. You don't open Facebook and see built with C++, built with PHP. That's just the technology that is best fit for that purpose. You use the product. Yeah. And in, in the blockchain space, the blockchain is always uh, promoted as as the reason why that, that is different. But from the consumer perspective, nobody nobody is interested in how you actually implement something. You could, like, on, on the same level, you have the, the parallelism goes in programming languages. Nobody cares how you write your system uh, if it works. Uh, only you care how you write your system because it's easier to maintain it and, and, and so on and so forth. So the functional programming to my to my knowledge beats the beats the rest as a, as a paradigm for for productive things but the the consumer only care if these leads weather products at the end it doesn't yes. doesn't care about yeah you have a nice code base what do i care yeah that that that, that i do agree with you here that most of the time like i i think most of the time consumers care about end product that they don't care about details. There are exceptions like this, for example, maybe there is a person who is deeply interested just in technologies and they kind of enjoy uh, kind of figuring out what technologies you use, but those are rare cases. Uh, What I was trying to do, what I was trying to say with blockchain is that sometimes it seems like the actual product of a certain blockchain is that it gives kind of what this blockchain kind of sells the value proposition is the ability to control it to control to have a higher control of whatever belongs to you right and some people want it it i i i thought i think that the number of these people is uh smaller than in general right those are like extremes in terms of distribution but sometimes people want something that they have full control of it and it is very common in um, uh, in you know when people live in a situation as like for example uh, in a situation where the environment in which they live is not stable right there is no there is no trust that what is yours will stay yours right there are things like this uh, and uh, again, I think. But I, think I, in I, some I see cases, a lot of yeah. properties. I mean, the ideas are nice. It's the implementation that That's doesn't work. The idea of having granular control, uh, censorship resistant technologies, yeah. uh, non reversibility of some parts yeah. of transactions, even, even though then 
I am I am a regulated person financially, so I I have to say that mm, non-reversibility is kind of uh, again a double-edged sword because you you might end up financing terrorism, you might end up financing things sure. that that should not be that should not be financed. But all of all of those are principles that, to some extent, I I agree with, and and those are the reasons why I've looked in the in the technology in the first place. I'm not saying those those use cases are not good yeah. use cases. I'm saying that the blockchain is not a good technology for those use cases, and we don't yet know what the technology is for those use cases. I mean, for, even if we take those use cases, um, do do you see like any use cases at all? At least like small part for the blockchain to exist, like. I see use cases where a blockchain might exist. I don't see use cases where a global blockchain would exist. Like, I don't see the point of sharing the same blockchain infrastructure between different projects. There may be projects where you, you would want decentralization of consensus, but to achieve decentralization of consensus, you don't necessarily need an open network of potentially infinite peers. You need a distributed enough set of independent peers. So like if you want something decentralized, you could take 10 servers in Italy, 10 servers in United States, 10 servers in, in different parts of the world with different political interests that share absolutely nothing, no common goals that run a single blockchain for a single use case where they all agree that this specific issue is better if if it works within within this kind of distributed consensus. I think within a closed network you might get, uh, given given you can impose limitations, like you you can connect to blockchains from your laptop, but it's pretty unrealistic to think your laptop might be able to handle thousands and thousands of concurrent transactions per second on a, on a specific domain. That's just unrealistic. A um, hundred servers running in parallel in a, in a distributed way, it could, it's realistic to think that it, we could get there by improving the technology. So I, I, I think there may be reasons for existence in, in, in the blockchain. I, I think there's like, the technology is very early Again, it's in, in its embryonal stage. I would compare it not even by the early days of the internet, but like the very early days of computing. We, we don't really know uh-huh. yet how to use it, when to use it, uh, which kind of, it's a POC stage. Let's, let's put it in this way. Uh, we have a very good POC that there exists a system where we can have fully decentralized consensus. We just need to find a good way to do so. It's like, for example, quantum computing. You have some examples of quantum computing, but still ages from from the day where your laptop will run quantum computing, uh, or even if your laptop will exist at the point where quantum computing becomes becomes mainstream. Those technologies have decades and decades of of figuring it out, and. I think actually the, the initial idea of a of a single central currency as a mean of of 
storage of wealth needs to be stable, doesn't need to fluctuate completely. It's actually a very good use case because we're 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 seeing it even now that the the economic environment worldwide is is kind of in, in complete turmoil and currencies are controlled centralized by each of the government and a government like a government like UK kind of decides out of the blue to do a policy change and and crashes the currency in, in a matter of a few days making people lose 10% just like that uh, then they change policy again it, it goes back well uh, i do think there is a if there were a, a single non-controllable sort of currency that's not a good one to run economies i would not run an economy on that but kind of a, as a global safe heaven uh, it might might actually be a, a great use case which was the original idea of, of bitcoins so I, I think the actually the, the the most interesting aspect of of those technologies it's it's precisely on on those aspects where where now they've almost been dismissed because uh, it, it's only about like I've heard Bitcoin is a good way of making payments the first three years of existence of Bitcoin when er everything was cheap. Now it's absolutely by no mean a good a good mean of payment. It's an expensive mean of payment. It's a slow mean of payment. You have instant transactions. So it kind of transitioned to be what uh, people call it uh, an inflation hedge. Well, we've seen that it's not an inflation hedge. It was a speculative asset, a highly speculative asset that, that is highly correlated to the tech, to the tech industry. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you check correlation between the prices of all the crypto assets and the prices of, for example, the Nasdaq, you find a high, a high correlation. And neither are, uh, are inflation resistant. That they're actually, if they are considered asset, they move with inflation. They raise price with inflation and, and, and so on and so forth. And when central banks pull up money, those assets crash. And the most speculative assets are the ones that crash the most. So you see that both in the in the stock markets, you have the highly speculative companies such as the Robinhood, such as the I don't know those this, the, all the specs, all the all the meme stocks, and and everything else has crashed like ninety percent. Mm -hmm. Apple has not crashed ninety percent. Apple has crashed less because obviously it's less speculative. They have less, they are less risky and and they are more resistant. And and Bitcoin it's kind of in between. It didn't crash 95 percent like like some companies have, but it, it crashed way more than 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 what. For example, Apple has lost in value, or, or or things like that. So I think the, the the whole model that that it is blockchain today doesn't doesn't make any sense from a, both a macroeconomical perspective and and from a software developer perspective. But I think to answer your question, where where you said you see any blockchain ever existing. Probably not in the way we think about it today, but I don't exclude that this wave of technology will lead to a different interpretation that may have may have positive outcomes. Mm -hmm. Understood. That that's actually interesting. And 
the way how you came basically to Bitcoin was through this company that you were all building, right? Yeah. So you got interested in blockchain and uh, and it was like like almost a decade. Right? Yeah, that was almost now, a decade right? ago, definitely. Interesting. And the thing that like you you said you started uh, pretty much programming professionally since like 13 years old, right? Yeah, I started professionally around about 14 years old. Started programming when I was 13, mm -hmm. but I started writing the first commercial software when I was 14 years old, yeah. And when you started working on this uh, company of yours that you mentioned, and you were working on blockchain technologies, were you kind of using uh, functional programming uh, kind of aspects, or you started more like as I said, I, I was at the, at the end trying to organize the code in a functional way. But even that was very, very early stage. The, the set of technologies that we have today and, and that I'm lucky enough to have participated in building partially are at a completely different level. Um, I, when I, when I, talk about how we develop software, uh, how you develop today, or at least how, how some people are developing today, is fully different from what was possible three years ago. And it's 100% different from what was possible 10 years ago. On, on the other side, the kind of boring aspect is that the theory behind the technologies that we are building hasn't changed since the late 70s or 80s the well i would say with 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 small additions around 94 95 with with some papers from eugene omaji on 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 using monads for 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 representing effects in in, in haskell but but those things are very old like we we've only learned i think recently that they may be useful, but uh, with kind of more uh, a relaxed manner. And, and even in functional programming, you know, there are different school of thoughts. There are people who like to do mathematics in a software development language. I think that's useful to some extent, but there are research languages that are targeting that specific use case, like, for example, IDRIS, AGDA, uh, COC, Lean. And, and and those languages that are really trying to stretch the boundaries of a type system to the point where if you compile your program, you're proving theorems, mathematically proving theorems. That's that to me that I have a background in mathematics is doing mathematics on a on a machine. It's the, it's the two essence. The two essence of mathematics is proving theorems. It's having ideas of a potential theorem. And you, you usually witness it in a, in a few uh, instances and you say that that might be a general behavior and you then try to prove that general behavior through an abstract, through an abstract way that, that has to be logically uh, a chain of logical conclusion derived from the axioms of mathematics. And by the way, there are different axiom sets where you can prove different things. It's not only a single mathematic you change. I, I say mathematics is a game. It starts with a set of rules. 
that are the axioms and you derive from the axioms. You change the rules, you change, you change the game. You're, you're playing chess or you're playing box, it depends. But the, the mathematics is actually the, the process of, of derivation, the project, the process of logical conclusion and proving and, and the process of giving proof of what is absolutely true beyond any doubt, not beyond a reasonable doubt, beyond any doubt. If you have a mathematical proof of something, it's true. Uh, it's one of the only things where you can say 100% true or 100% false. There are paradoxes in mathematics, but there are a subset of things where if you can assert truthfulness, it's actually true or false. There's no fuzzy in between a thing that can be true or false. So if you want to do mathematics, that is the, the way of doing mathematics in a, in, a, in a programming language. I don't think that's, that's even remotely useful for application development. Some of the ideas may be ported in, in languages for software development, but you can't translate one-to-one. And that's where I believe part of functional programming is, is a dead end. It's never gonna get integrated in, in, in real life industrial production. And because they wanna go on the on the industry side, the language cannot evolve in a mathematical sense. So it's kind of stuck in between. Uh, what we are trying to do with with libraries like FPTS or or Effect, that's the that's the one I've I, I built. It's more getting the essence of some ideas and making it useful for day-to-day -day application development. Like we don't really care effect is a is a monad, but we don't really care that effect is a monad. Nobody even even remotely cares that that it is a monad at the end. Nobody cares that, that it has an applicative structure. Nobody cares about any of the mathematical principles. We might use it internally to have some guarantees, but at the API level, you see things that are concrete to the, the, to the needs of every everyday developers. So that, that's where I think the, that functional programming can win in a, in, a, in a big time because it's a principled way uh, of doing things and if you if you design it on the domain of app development without all of the jargon coming from mathematics without focusing on the mathematical aspects it can be extremely productive and 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 we've seen it even like if i think about react one of the biggest revolutions in react was when redux can, came out Second big revolution of React was when hooks came out, when functional components when, when came out. Those are all things that have kind of roots in different areas of functional programming. Not, not pure functional programming for the examples I've, I've made at last. Uh, actually, Redux, yes, from pure functional programming, but kind of hooks and functional component that they're not pure by any by any mean but uh, syntactically uh, they, they 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 are more declarative let's put it in this way and and all have represented big 
big steps forward in usability of and in 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 how productive can you be when when using a specific uh, piece of uh, piece of tech and we have the same with with effect like i i gave a presentation recently where i wrote the same thing in plain javascript and then i wrote it with effect and it was like four pages of code against 10 lines of code and the 10 lines of code you could add another line changing behavior again you could add another line refining the whole thing what one side is perfectly it's a pure description of what what is supposed to happen the other is a, a an imperative way of managing state and everything else where uh, where even making a, a small change when you have four pages of code if you make even a small change it's it's very hard to be sure that the change is correct to reassess the behavior to even test it and and all of the things so when you get to the point of shrinking complexity into something very very simple that speaks about everyday needs like managing databases managing transactions interruptible computations concurrency all of those things don't the jargon is not mathematical uh, if if you ever have, have built a backend you probably had to interface with a with a database if you ever built a front end you probably had to interface with apis if you call apis you have to control the concurrency you have to control how many times you can retry uh, if an operation fails, uh, if you change page, you don't want all of the network requests that are ongoing to continue. You want to shut down the thing. So there are there are many things that that are common needs that can be defined using very descriptive APIs, and I, I think that's that's where functional programming can can make the difference. In in other languages, the like effect is inspired by by Zio in Scala, which is trying to do the same thing in the in the Scala language, kind of clean up the mathematical aspects of functional programming, all the jargon, and try to find a concrete core that is useful for for the developers. And I think they are doing an amazing job. We are we are trying to do the same. The same type of job, and and the the beautiful thing that I'm extremely happy about is that with effect at, at the beginning we we depended on FPTS, but then we branched off, and we branched off because FPTS was very mathematical. The author described it as a as a way to teach mathematics, in in his view. And that that posed limitations. That with effect we tried to change, so we took separated roads. But recently, we are working again together to try to build a single a single ecosystem by by bringing back the learnings that we had while branching off. With effect into into FPTS 3.0, which will take most of the naming conventions from from effect, which will take the behavior, the basic behavior of of unifying types, and embrace 
the variance of the language because uh, TypeScript is a, is a structural language with subtyping. Haskell is a nominal language without subtyping. So they are they're different uh, host language. What, what you can do by leveraging at the maximum your language is, is more than what you can do by simply trying to copy copy over the the patterns and the progress is is fantastic so i i'm more and more confident that we will get to a point where we have a single unified ecosystem of libraries where it basically become a, a very large set of lego blocks that you can compose together however you want in, in your program with, with familiar syntax. So you don't need to have a degree in, in mathematics to read the library code, to understand it, to to use it. You can even start as a, I mean, as a junior. Uh, I mean, a few things. It would be, it would, first of all, I, I, I I would be happy to see what FTest uh, uh, 3.0 would bring. I am more familiar with their ecosystem, and this is why I'm more excited. To be honest, I, I started looking into effects, right? And the, like, I, I just didn't know it existed before, not long ago, and this is why I didn't have the. And hopefully, this what we record right now also will help other people to kind of uh, find out that this, such a thing exists, right? But in terms of not knowing mathematics, I can say, at least personally for me, when I started to uh, look into FPTS, as you know, the documentation in terms of examples is very sparse. <laughs> it is more about like type signature and we kind of assume that you should know. <laughs> it, it was difficult for me, even when, uh, when I was starting and still is right now, but less so but still in some uh, um, in some scenarios and use cases but but it, it was d difficult and this is one one of the reasons why i wanted to kind of uh maybe I, I thought about how can i help right in terms of uh, uh taking all these things that i also find useful not just because in the conceptual mathematical sense, but because they help me to solve actual real life problems in a better way. And I will talk about this as well. So I, I thought about how I can do that. And there is like a project that I'm working on in terms of like educational materials and stuff like this, right? But for me personally, for example, when I was starting, uh, first of all, I, I, it is interesting to notice, for example, how in the last, let's say, five years, many programming languages in general across our industry started to adopt more and more function, bring some pieces of functional programming, right, uh, to them. It is like, even when Java started with Java 1.8, started to bring Lambda functions and stuff like this, it, it, it was interesting for me to, over the course of the last couple of years to uh, see how the whole industry evolves and moving toward the, that. And this was interesting for me because I started I, I started to be interested in functional programming myself not much earlier than this started to happen. I maybe maybe like seven years ago I started to be interested. I somehow kind of started 
piece by piece encountered different things which sounded reasonable to me and I even remember that I, I was giving some uh, one talk, tech, tech talk in, in my home country where, where I was born about and we I, I was doing it along with a different person he was talking about uh, uh, object-oriented approach to things and I was talking about uh, functional approach to think, right? And this is where I was kind of digging deep and finding out that it, it kind of started with uh, Alfonso Church and with his like uh, lambda proposition, right? And how they work it with Turing. It, it was interesting. And since then, I kind of, I was still interesting, interested in those ideas. But the problem is that I couldn't really know how to apply it to real life, to actual problems that I have. Yeah, I knew that Haskell was there, uh, it was purely functional thing, and uh, like I could spend a lot of time kind of digging deep into it, but in at the end it would be good for me, for my kind of satisfaction, basically my own, right? <laughs> you know that there, there is a joke I, 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 about that, yeah. Haskell is pure because nobody ever runs it. Yeah. The code itself is a pure yeah, description. I mean, that, now it, that that is a that is a dark joke. It's a very useful language to some extent, but I understand your your point yes. of view. It's useful yeah. to, for you to learn, yeah. but you can't apply it. And this is why FPTS was. I, I first encountered FPTS. I guess like three years ago, three four years ago, something like this, and. This is was kind of a breaking point for me because it I like I it, it gave me opportunity to use this thing that I found interesting into and to solve actual problems that I actually have yeah, right could use and it. this is was a very critical yes yes it took like I mean it took me a while to start to even understand like I mean you can understand general concept but when you with all this knowledge, when you come to a project and you want to start writing an API endpoint, actual API endpoint with all those things that you mentioned and even more, you kind of, okay, how do I do that? And it took me a while and a lot of kind of rewriting and experimenting, but it, it, it was very transformative for me and I find it very useful. And again, there, there will be like much more like to go and the the interesting thing about functional programming for me is that it, it gives me confidence in what I'm doing, right? If I write something, I write and I know that it works instead of thinking that it works, right? Well, I would add, because, you know it works I mean, in a specific way. You know that yeah. the defined types, like if you use task either, you know that that program yes. is asynchronous. You know things about the execution, and by looking at the code, you have a pure description. The power is then limited by by obviously what what the modules can provide, like. Building what you what you described before, like a backend with APIs and and so on and so forth, it's still very difficult by using plain FPTS because yes, you have nice modules, but you lack 
a solution for connecting to databases to manage resources, life, the life cycle of a resource, which is something you acquire, then your program runs, and then it cleans up. Uh, dependency injection, many of the patterns that are familiar for, like, if you use Java and Spring in an object-oriented world, dependency injection is figured out, error management is, uh, and logging of errors is figured out. You might argue in, in bad ways, and I would agree with, with that, but by using plain FPTS, you don't have anything close to that. You have to reinvent a lot, which is where yes, the complexity comes in. You need to build it yourself, pretty much. And, and that's where effect yes, yes. bridges a little bit. Because effect has dependency injection built in. Effect has interruptibility. It's, it's based on fibers, so it handles concurrency very well. I, I would say it's more concrete than, than FPTS. While FPTS provides the abstractions, uh, Effect provides the concrete implementations. And, and at the moment, we had these two independent ecosystems where we also had to care about abstractions in Effect because the abstractions in FPTS were not powerful enough. But in, in FPTS 3, the abstractions will be powerful enough. So we will be able to depend from effect, I mean, in, in effect to depend from FPTS and export the same abstractions that FPTS is using so that we have this more common, an ecosystem that works together instead of, instead of working, of working against. Because really what FPTS does, it's a very abstract library. And then you have concrete modules and the funny thing is that most of the people use it for the concrete part because it has modules to interoperate with arrays, iders, options, promises, and stuff like that. But it doesn't build anything that is not already in JavaScript. Uh, uh, the task module is a wrapper around promise. It, it's limited by what promise can do. Effect goes way deeper and we don't we don't use promises in, in effect. Effect is not a wrapper around promise. It has its own runtime that is a fiber uh, system, and it provides way more concrete value. It would be well. It it will be extremely interesting to see when when the two ecosystems merge, not merge in the same project, but merge in a way that they are interoperable with each other that effect compounds FPTS and FPTS compounds effect. It, it will be really nice to see where, where this leads. Ma, 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 you can correct me if I'm wrong because I'm trying to wrap my head around all of that. But my, my, my understanding, the way how I conceptualize it in my head right now is that FPTS provide a set of like uh, structures, right, which are more like fundamental and more, 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 more theoretical. Let's say I don't know. To some right? extent. And effect, effect provide kind of is it uh, is a layer on top of it, which kind of bridges what uh, the concept that are inside of FPTS to the more real life use cases. To some Does extent, yes, yes. To some extent. Absolutely, yes. And that is also why I think it's important to keep 
the libraries to some extent separated because you might yes. you might need just a simple wrapper around a promise to make a small piece of front end code look better you might not need all the power of a of a fiber based runtime system but to build something like a backend where you have databases where you have complex architectures or even if you want to use functional programming in the large in a front end you benefit a lot from from effect but if the two systems are progressively like you can't start with basic fpts and include the effect whenever whenever you need it uh, you can start easy you can start very simple and you can you have a path forward which is learning bit by bit you start you include a module like task from fpts and then you ask yourself okay how do i interrupt this operation oh i can't to interrupt it i would need effect let me import effect the same code will work you just have to change basically the import import effect instead of task and and you would get it with interruptibility and and other constraints that are closer to to your needs but you learn things bit by bit it's not a full in i th i think it you know i could be wrong here for sure but i think it different people what i have experienced in my life is that different people learn in different ways because it seems like some people want to kind of uh, start learning from bottom up right they start from understanding each pitch in uh, each piece in particular and then they kind of build up to 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 be able to build something useful right but other people uh, they kind of, let's say, use some library, they solve a particular problem, and only once the problem is solved, they kind of try to learn dig deeper into how this library works and to kind of explore it. So I'm not sure, of course, it is speculation on my part, but if my conceptualization of uh, how kind of FPTS and effect relate to each other, I would assume that most people would start their kind of start to get familiar with functional programming ecosystem with uh, with effect first because it 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 provides tools to solve their actual needs and then when they see that they can solve their actual problems fairly quickly and they notice that the way how they solve it is more is more efficient than how they used to do it then they will try to dig into fp into effect and later into whatever is uh even more fundamental to understand like why it is the case why does it happen like this because for me when i was starting uh, functional programming what i noticed is that i was writing more code just just in terms of lines right and i, I thought like i mean it should be better. I mean, functional programming should be better, but I'm writing too much code. And it took me a while to realize that the reason why I'm writing more code is because uh, those concepts kind of force me to handle edge cases. Because in, pre in my previous life, I, what I was writing, I was writing code for the happy path. And of course it was sm smaller in terms of code, but 
like it doesn't work that well uh, uh, because happy pass is not, yeah, and, not but i believe that the, the, the you have said something beautiful and i believe the true objective of functional programming is for you to program in the same you know, not in the same way but in the same amount of code as only caring about the the happy path while also caring about the edge cases, while also caring about the stability. I think that is the final objective. We are not there yet. Still a little bit more verbose, but if you if you use effect, you already see that the code starts to shrink because many of the things are already in the library and you can just reuse the building blocks. And that, that kind of yeah. compacted a little bit more because the, the true objective is you should care almost about only the happy path, but be notified about when you have an edge case. And by notified, I mean having errors explicit and decide when when you want to handle the errors, how can you handle the errors, and, and all of this, all of this machinery. The other aspects are the, the dependency. I say and every piece of code has three co three properties. It can run to success, it can fail in between, and it may need dependencies. That is true for any yes. piece of code. Now, it might require zero dependency, it might never fail and always succeed, but those three aspects are always critical elements of any piece of code. That's where effect focus. Effect has three types. Three data type, three generic parameters that represent the dependencies that your application needs, the errors that your application may produce, and the output that your application will return in case of success. Those three concepts that to me are fundamental in any piece of code are represented at the type level with an API that doesn't make it complex to maintain all of these types. My personal objective is to get effect to the point where you write code without without even typing. There are people who like all types explicitly annotated, and you, you mean using like kind of uh, suggestions? No, I mean inference, In complete inference. If you write a function and the return type is inferred, you don't you don't need to write it. Um, Writing it might be useful in some cases, but might be counterproductive in other cases. And I think, I think, I think in terms of uh, maybe I'm like not complete understand what you mean, but when people write functions, right? They, it's kind of uh, common, I think, to kind of think about. You, what what kind of arguments you accept and what their types would be and what would be the expected uh, return type, right? And when you do that, then you can kind of write the body of the function. Uh, and if you declare the types in advance, it uh, the compiler will tell you if your body doesn't match what you kind of stated it should be, right? And this is why my understanding, people uh, like to write uh, um, type declarations for the functions uh, explicitly, right? Because even in TypeScript right now, you can create a function and uh, not specify uh, 
even arguments type and return type, you can do that and you can do it, it will still be functional uh, programming uh, like match all of these things, but and I'm not sure to be honest if, if it is possible, maybe, maybe I just maybe I don't know if it is possible to kind of uh, declare functions without declaring their types of arguments or uh, uh, the return value. Well, the, the arguments always need explicit typing because those are yeah. the inputs to, to your program. But as of yeah. the return types, um, there are two school of thoughts, even in, in, in extreme functional programming. There is the school of thoughts where the compiler is a checker so you specify what you want and the compiler will check the body to ensure that what you stated is actually respected. And there are the set, there is the second school of thought that perceives the compiler as a, as a friend where you have interactivity with the compiler. If I write the function input, or the function arguments typed, and I write the function body, the compiler tells me what is the return type. There is an interactivity between me and, and the compiler. I don't think either of the two are fine for 100% of the cases. I think there are there is blurring in between. Because if you think about, for example, a program, and you think about adding one more error case to a specific function, you don't really want to go and change all the type signatures of your program to also carry that specific error type. You want that to be completely inferred. Only where you care that you have handled all of the errors, you actually want an explicit type to be sure that at that point, you can, it's powerful to express boundaries but it's powerful to relax the boundaries where, where you want more interactivity with, with the with the compiler. So both school of thoughts are are positive in some sense, and but the objective should be that you can do both in a in a non-verbose way and in an extremely productive way. Then the degree of which everybody has their own preference, I don't really care. And my code looks in a way, your code might look slightly different. If we are both highly productive and effective in what we do, fine. And I, I, I don't wanna tell people how their code should look like. I wanna give tools to people to write better code. That's the, that's the objective, at least to me. And I'm very happy to see that now we are finally converging with, with FPTS. Most of what we've I mean, we've extended from effect is getting back to FPTS. As even names of functions, like there uh, if you if you have a function that that for example uh, you want to use to log errors and stuff like and stuff like this. Chain first is an awful name for that function. It doesn't doesn't have any any meaning. Top error is a way better name 
to understand that this function taps onto the error of the program you're using. That's the same function, just with the with, with a different name, and it makes a whole lot of difference for the for the consumer of of an API. And FPTS is getting there too. I, I I I think I mean in terms of naming, because yeah, in terms of kind of things like you know, people sometimes say that one approach is uh more readable than another, or more maintainable than another, or one name is more clear than another. And to be honest, I always struggled uh, to understand how people kind of know, right? Because for me, it was, it, it always seemed that what is more clear for one person could be not as clear for the other, and mostly it depends on the where those two people come from, what their background is, right? Because if we, for example, talk about some, you know, person which has a very mathematical background and which comes from uh, even like, uh, uh, yeah, so which comes from a different background than most people, let's say, then I, I couldn't imagine that there are people for whom chain first would be kind of obvious uh, name, right? I would say that I would say that maybe the number of such people is lower, right, in general, because I think uh, the higher amount of uh, engineers who are doing like regular engineering work and they will be coming from the backgrounds of like regular JavaScript, regular Java, whatever, for them what you are saying will be much more clear. Right, but I, I would assume that if some person comes from I don't know Haskell and tries to write in TypeScript, I I would imagine that they would feel comfortable with chain first. Who knows, right? It is just like my yeah, that uh, that, that is true. Of course, if you if you borrow names from a from a different language, the people coming from that specific language will be more familiar with it. That's that's normal because they are used to write in that specific way. But one should ask when it's about naming the best name is the is the name that is closest to the concept you're trying to model if you have a computation that produces errors first and error have nothing meaningful first doesn't mean error now chain first might be a general name in, a, in, in the abstract sense, but in a concrete module, if that module deals with dependencies, errors, and success, it's better for the success function to be called success, the error function to be called error, and the dependency function called dependency. Yeah. Because they directly mask to the concept they, for any new person learning, if you think about error or failures, now you could then argue, okay, which one is precisely better between two names that have similar meanings? Fine, but some things are, are, are pure constructs. And, and like, uh, that is where actually one, there is one interesting point. And some people perceive Haskell as the, the absolute truth. But Haskell is one interpretation 
of category theory wrought in a language. Haskell calls functor what in reality is a covariant functor. Haskell calls applicative something that doesn't exist in mathematics in the same way. The closest thing would be monoidal. Uh, if you if you simply look at the mathematical structure, nobody is caring about applicative structures in mathematics. That is something that was useful in Haskell because Haskell is curried. In TypeScript, that is not curried. Generally, you don't you don't write functions in a in a you have multiple arguments functions. It's not that every argument is a different. Um, like in Haskell, you have one, you have two mathematical functions. You have yeah. one argument that returns a function, that returns a function, that returns a function. In that sense, applicative makes sense because it's the progressive application to that current function. Inside Haskell, that has a meaning. Inside TypeScript, Scala, and, and more object-oriented languages, a different representation might be more natural that has the same mathematical properties. Monoidal and applicative are isomorphic. One can be derived from the other, but one is better fit for things like TypeScript or non-curated non languages. Now, not to go into many details, but the point is, again, mathematics is not, there, it's not a single thing. There exists multiple mathematics, depending on the rule set. The rules we have in TypeScript, the rules they have in Scala, the rules that are in, 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 in Haskell are fundamentally different. And the, the best you can do has to account for the differences. Because otherwise you, you, you are restricted to the, to the minimum that is common between the languages. Where you really want is to maximize what you can do in your language and to maximize what you can do in the other language. So I think for Haskell purposes, some of the naming, some of the conventions are perfect. When translated to a different place, the perfection starts to crumble because they were not running on the same, on the same set of rules. So we're effectively playing a different game. And if the game is different, then, then what's optimal is different, and I'm not. I'm not saying we have the perfect solution right now, uh, but we are trending towards towards that. And 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 another thing that that you said that is very correct. You have to look at numbers. If there are ten people who are familiar with A, and a hundred thousand that are familiar with B, probably you have to care about you have to care about B. And the 10 can adapt. If you know Haskell, you can work even with slightly different names. Concepts are similar and so on and so forth. But if you don't know Haskell, you shouldn't learn Haskell before you are able to use FPTS. You should just be able to learn FPTS and use it directly. That, 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 that is true because uh, you kind of, as I said, you kind of expected to know a lot of these things uh, to to use FPTS, right? And 
It is also interesting because if we are talking about such layered approach, right, we have like FPTS and on top of it we have FFTS, uh, FFTS, yeah. Uh, when people, it is, it is also kind of important to uh, to know at which level of abstraction uh, the person will interact. And uh, it, again, again, different names could make uh, different, could make sense at different levels of abstraction, right? And FFTS uh, that tries to bridge the gap uh, uh, in order to allow uh, people to do actual production, like common things that we do in production, right? Yes, I, I totally agree that there uh, we need to, uh, the names that uh, are more common to what the people are used in this uh, kind of domain, right? Uh, it, it is much more beneficial than an abstract uh, thing which uses uh, that FPTS use. But at FPTS level, right, since it is kind of more uh, at, at a level, uh, at a lower level abs uh, of abstraction, then more kind of abstract name m makes sense there because it is. And there yeah, could but, be but, a but case in, in FPTS, yes. you have two, two things you have the abstract yeah. side which are the type classes and the concrete mm -hmm. side, which are the modules like array, like set, like either, like option and so on and so forth. So there is a concrete part in FPTS too. Now, one, one very interesting case was a discussion we had recently about the naming of Traverse. Now, I think Traverse array is a, is a, an awful name. I think for each is way more clear because you have an array of things and you want to run an operation for each element of the array. But for each is a terrible name to use in general because given different structures, the operation is slightly different. So Traverse is a better name for the type classes aspect of FPTS or the abstract aspect of FPTS. But in the in the task either module, you should have a for each function. You should not have a traverse array function. That is where the name specialize to the specific concrete case. You have a generic principle and that specializes to a specific one in a specific case. So the, the two levels of abstractions that, that you, you've also described is is important. So if we're talking about blocks, I think there are actually three blocks. There is the abstract side of FPTS that, that is composed of type classes and functions that operates on the type classes. There, I think the classical names are better, like their functor monads, applicatives, and so on and so forth are more knowledgeable well, I've known from, from a lot more people that wants to deal with that level of abstraction. And if you want to deal with that level of abstraction, you're even better better using the same names because the, the whole documentation is online, the references that you will find use those names. Then there is the concrete side of FPTS. There are common modules that are basically shells around basic JavaScript primitives. 
like set, like array, like promise, and so on and so forth. Very common things that you might want to use in pretty much any application that should have naming and behavior, which is familiar to the user, and then effect that builds on top, which is the more concrete aspect of application development with functional programming. Like this abstract is JS proxies, not proxies in terms of like JavaScript proxies, but a functional proxy to a JavaScript primitive. And then there is a fact which is concrete for application development, specific in application development. And the naming, as, as you said, at the lowest level, it might make sense to keep the broader, to keep the broader name, but as we go above, we are closer and closer to everyday needs of developers. Uh, so we should be more, more familiar with, with the, with the consumer, because that leads uh -huh. back to the to the beginning of the of the discussion. If, if you talk about products, consumers are interested in 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 using the product e efficiently. They don't really care that those modules are built using mathematical principles. They care that from those modules they can build nice software, and that this software is understandable for the majority of people. And I can guarantee to you, if you take anybody and a function is called tap error, they might not know what tap is, but they probably guess has something to do with errors. That is the first guess. Contains error yeah, in the I name. Mean, that's <laughs> if you see yeah. something like yeah, chain first, they have to know that chain first means I want to tap onto the error channel. But with the, with chain uh, with chain first, it is also interesting because you could use uh, like whatever. Let, let's say it is common. It is common uh, to use let's say either when you have first error and then you have your result, right? But there is nothing prevents you to use like a different order if you have some specific use case, right? You can do that. Right, it is not common, but you can do that. But pay attention, and for this reason, it is yeah possible, but it's not the interpretation of because either is yes, uh, either left or right, but the functor instance of either is pointed on the right side. So the meaning on the type class instances and everything else. It's not the same. You can't just flip it, and you can't flip it's and, true. And, and jump on on the other. You you could say, okay, I have an either. I flip the either. I map and I flip back. That is a map on the left. The, 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 I guess this is my point that lower you go in terms of abstractions, more control you have, but you also need to deal with more like kind of abstract concept and abstract names, right? And this is kind of why it... And people, I, I do think that most people, most like people who do production work at, at companies different, let's say they use something like Lodash, right? They, they just use it and that's it. I don't think that a lot of people really go 
and look into how it is implemented in terms of structures, in terms of optimization. But they are they are users in this case. They just use it and it works. Some of them are interested enough to kind of uh, dig deeper and understand and learn. But I would say that would I would assume I don't know, but this would that this would be like a smaller amount of people, right? And kind of. For those people, kind of, they need to to understand what they sign up for when they try to expand their knowledge in general. That they they will realize that sometimes people use a lot of different names for the same thing, and it is very very interesting in terms of how and even and not even like different things. It is also when people try to learn deeper and deeper, they also need to know kind of the history, how the things happened because of the history, right? and how it affected for legacy reasons, right? Because some things that we have even in JavaScript make no sense right now, but they are there because this is how it happened, right? And it is just like, you know, a sacrifice you need to do if you want to kind of increase your general understanding with the tools and stuff like this. But for me personally, I would say that yeah, I, w I had to go through all this experience, but w trying to kind of extend knowledge, right? But I found it very useful for me to really know in details the tools that I use, right? Because you can use even, let's say, the simple thing. Uh, even, let's say, let's take uh, VS Code, just a tool. You can download it, open type, it works, right? But if you invest time into understanding how to kind of configure it that it works the best for you, I believe that you have the opportunity to increase your productivity in general multiple folds, right? And and this is with, with every tool pretty much, right? For example, I use a lot uh, React Native as well. You can go and start, like, create React Native app, it will create you scaffold, you can start typing, and it works, right? But if you want to, uh, to, be, to, to be able to do very specific things you, you know, to, that you want to do, you kind of need to know uh, the specifics of how it implemented, how it works, and stuff like this. You don't need to do, you don't have to know it to use it, but if you know, first of all, you will be more productive in general, and uh, second, you will be able to control uh, more granularly the results of your work. Maybe it is like 2%, right? But you will be able to build a product which is 2% than products on average, right? And this is why I, I find it uh, so useful to understand in depth really tools that you use. This is how it is, I guess. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that is, a, but, but that is a, a very correct, interpretation because there are different types of people i am also of the kind that i like to know my tools very well um, i'm not really a fanatic of text editors ids i kind of use kind of the basic configuration is a good fit for me but not because i don't want to i have not spent the time just because when I started programming, I was using text files with no coloring. Uh, there was nothing at the time. So to me, even, even what a basic editor does 
it's way more than what I need to be productive. And I, I mostly concentrate on the on the coding aspects. But one concept I, I try to say a lot is don't use a library that you wouldn't be able to contribute to, that you wouldn't be able to understand, that you wouldn't be able to, like, you don't have to contribute huge features. Absolutely not. You don't have to digest the whole complexity. Absolutely not. But know your way around the code of what you're using. Because otherwise, you're really, really, really buying into unknown, into complete, sometimes complete madness in 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 in, in TypeScript. Because you know you have the full npm ecosystem at your disposal. There's crazy stuff there. I mean, let, let's say let's take React, right? The the amount of people who use React in the world is like huge. Yeah. How many of those people can actually contribute even small features to React code base? I don't think it is very big a set of people. Yeah, and there are a lot of people using React for things they should never use React for. There are a lot of people that don't understand React by any meaning. And we've seen it even recently when in React there was the, the V18 update where concurrent mode finally, finally made it through. Yeah. And for concurrent mode to run, well, turns out components need to be here because mounting and unmounting could, could run multiple times, even on a, on a single render, because you might have things suspending and so on and so forth. So React added a check in strict mode for development, which basically forces every, every use effect to run twice. That's just to prevent people from having bugs derived from the fact that use effect may run concurrently if you use concurrent mode. That made people crazy. That made people go completely insane. Well, it was obvious from day one that you should not perform side effects in the use effect. That is there for synchronizing between UI and state state of the world, knowing that a specific component has mounted or has unmounted and, and stuff like that, that there are rendering effect runnings running on, on that. Now, obviously you don't contribute to React. Now it's a project to a point where what's left to do are complex things. So you can't pretend people open such a complex code base and, and go straight in and know their way. But knowing how, how it works in details is fundamental to use it. Because otherwise, I think the, the average user of React will have issues updating to V18 at the moment, just because the total lack of knowledge and the total madness of wanting to manage the state fully inside the rendering cycle of something. Uh, that React made it clear from, from day one that was not, not supposed to be the case. But as you said, there are, I think, millions of people using, using React. And, and probably those millions have most likely no idea about how it works in the internals. I mean, from my from my point of view, like I mean, 
I guess even though if even if there is a lot of people who don't use React, you know, properly, correctly as per book, let's say, right? They still use it and they still create final product product that kind of works. Yes, it could work much better, right? Much, much better. If you look at the web pages and when you take your phone and it is like hot because it is loads some page, it's horrible. But I mean, it's better than it's better that we have this page at least than not having it at all, right? For me personally, it would be difficult to work with people who don't understand uh, in details the tools because I will find it myself explaining all the time and spending too much time and not uh, not not kind of being very productive. And it is just my personality that I want to be productive. And for this reason, it would be difficult for me. But at the whole, I would say that it is a good thing that even if those applications could be much better, it is better that they exist than not. Let's say we have some government organi- uh, some government website. Yes, those government websites are horrible, but it is better if you can use them in, rather than going in person and waiting in line. Till the point where I mean. they leak your documents. Yeah. When they leak your documents, then you're back to thinking, oh crap, they are government's website. They should be as secure as possible. The problem is everything is right till shit happens. Now, I think React is by no means that high risk and it's well maintained enough where it's one of the only cases where I would say it's positive that people are using it no matter no matter the, the, the deep knowledge. It's trusted enough code base and it's documented enough for you to be able to use it without deep knowledge. You might find yourself in some edge cases where when you face the edge cases, you go deeper. So for that specific one, I would I would agree with you. But like a database library, if you just use it, do you, do you know if it escapes properly strings yeah. or not? Yes, yes. Stuff like that. It's it's yeah. fundamental to know. Now, you might rely on documentation 100%, and then the libraries you can use are the 0.000% because there's a huge investment to have a documentation precisely reflecting all of the behavior of the code and have all the language to explain the detail of the behavior of the code. Now, a language like TypeScript doesn't have everything documented. Even a Microsoft project with that level of investment doesn't have everything documented. So knowing your way in code is fundamental. And many people have the perceptions that libraries are magic. Libraries are written precisely in the same code that you use for app development. If you look in FPTS, 99% of the things you see in FPTS are plain and normal functions that you could use in your app development every day. So it is not impossible to understand it by going through the code I don't suggest learning it going through the code. That's not a, a good way of learning. But once you've learned the basic, once you get your prototypes working, once you are you are deciding if you really should use that technology, 
open source code. Have a look at the source code. Look at the style. Look it's, if it's well-maintained. Know your way around it. You don't have to be at the point of being able to, to do major feature contributions. But you shouldn't be scared of saying, okay, I have a bug, at least I realize where where it is. Or uh, like that, that turns the other way too, because many times you get bug reports without any type of reproduction and just a little description of the of, of the behavior. <laughs> You're not gonna get bugs fixed if you report issues in these ways, because the maintainers will not be able to reproduce your issues. And if the maintainers are not able to reproduce your issues, you've, get, you've got zero chances of having a bug fixed. The, the only chance is the maintainer also realized the problem has a reproduction by himself, by themselves, and they managed to fix the bug. While it would be way better if the user spent enough time to produce a proper reproduction, a minimized reproduction that focuses on the precise issue, that takes time. It's a lot of work to do as a, as a user of a library. That gets bugs fixed. That is contribution. Contribution doesn't need to be hard contribution. Opening an issue with a proper reproduction and a proper description of the behavior is already a huge contribution that you can do to the open source as a consumer of something to solve problems you found. At this level, I think everyone should get at this level. Because if I notice a bug in React, if, I, if I'm not able to scope it down, if I don't understand where it comes from, Really, there's no way to prove if it's my bug, if it's React's bug, if it's misunderstanding or, or anything else. And, and you can see like the, the more the libraries becomes popular, the more amount of issues just gets completely ignored because they, they're meaningless. They're meaningful temporarily for, for the person who opened the issue. And then either they find a workaround or, 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 or I don't know how they can continue like it, it never it never existed i've never opened an issue in my life without providing enough details or without explicitly saying folks i have absolutely no idea how to do this would some of the maintainer be available to help me scope it down i can do a lot of work but i need pointers if i don't know where to go i need some pointers but that's a positive interaction you're not saying just i have this bug i don't care you fix it no i'm i'm interested to fix my my bug so if i don't have any idea where to look i may ask to maintain a little bit of help that's even how you learn deeper because for example i had recently a bug in in, in vtest and i knew zero about the code base of, of vtest I started using before knowing anything about the code base of Vitest. And I had a bug. And I was like, hmm, how do I proceed? I had absolutely no idea where to look at. Well, you start, you clone the code base, you spend half a day on it. After half a day, you start to get an idea about where things are. 
the day after I opened up an issue with a proper description of the bug, contacted the maintainers. The maintainers had no bandwidth to solve it. I asked, would, would you mind if I take, if I make an attempt? Sure, go ahead. Made an attempt. Another bug generated from my attempt to fix it, fixed the other bug, and now the fix is, has been merged and it's in production. I knew nothing about that code base before, before starting. But if you're not at the point of, you have to either know you can dig in or you're simply blindly trusting. And blindly trusting Facebook, it's kind of okay. Blindly trusting Microsoft is kind of okay. Blindly trusting any maintainer on NPM, it's by no means okay. Like if you use React without knowing anything, fine. If you install a casual library from NPM without knowing anything, you might end up in strange, weird places. And you might expose your users to risk, leak of data, and so on and so forth. I mean, as, as a person who uses, right, as, a, as, <coughs> as those developers who use it, I guess it all comes down to how, how invested you are as a person in the in having a good result, right? Because people people uh, have different motivations for their job on why why they do their job, right? And for those people who actually very like. Uh, conscientious in terms of the result and they care about the result and they want to have the good result even even if they because we all started using libraries at some point without knowing them right but if the person actually wants to get the a good result then yes they will they will find it interesting to investigate uh, the code base of the libraries that they use maybe not all and not uh, uh, at one time, right? It will take time to progressively mm. run of this. But but there are also, yeah, I, I think there are also people who kind of just have a ticket at their job and they want the ticket to go away. Yeah, <laughs> but I think it's totally dependent about what, what you're doing. If what you're doing yeah. is something that doesn't take any personal data of your users, that doesn't expose any any higher risk, I think it's totally fine to build your personal website, your personal blog. Yeah. You don't you don't need all all of all of the all of the detailed work. Yeah, but sure. before you made an example about a government website. For a government website where you put your documents in not having the level of knowledge that allows you to explore the code that you're depending on is a high security risk. It's not a low security risk. So in that case, I don't care that the person wants the ticket gets closed. The ticket has to be closed in a, in a proper manner. So it, it depends totally yeah, by, I mean, by what, by well, I, I would have to say I mean, by the risk level of, of the target you are, you are, you are trying to develop for. That is true. You understand this, and you kind of 
have a reasonable assessment of it, and that is good, right? But it, but it depends on whether in their organization, even if it is government organization, whether there are people like yourself who understand the level of importance of what they are doing, right? And it could be or could not be the case, right? And it is unfortunate, but it is reality. Yeah, right? yeah it's, that's, it's absolute is, reality. But it's also why we optimize yeah. the APIs to the point of allowing that. The, the fact that, for example, effect has not yet reached 1.0, it will reach our C1 close, like next 15 days, and will probably reach 1.0 by the end of the year. The, my focus will be to make it as dumb as possible for users to use it without knowing the low level of effect. That's totally fine. And I do expect 99.9% .9 of the people starting there. But I still suggest as, a, as an advice to the developers I mentor, if you really want to get to the next level, to the next stage of your career, you need to dig deeper in the things you are, you are using because mm -hmm. there are many people who like have used react since seven years since the very beginning and are perfectly fluent in react they've done only that in seven years they have not they are not more valuable today than they were seven years ago they were actually less valuable because the number of people knowing react when way up so you know the the higher your your knowledge is in a specific topic the more valuable you become uh, if everybody knows react knowing react is not is not a game changer if everybody knows react but only three percent know how, how it actually works well that three percent has way more value so that is more of an advice to to the developers that that I give in general, but I do realize that the the reality exists, and that most of the the developers will not take that uh, that approach. Yeah, and it's interesting. I I always found it myself, kind of. I found a lot of value in building my own bi bicycles, basically, and uh, even if the tools exist. The problem is that I wasn't doing it properly at the beginning, right? Because I was trying to build bicycles on actual production projects, which is not a good idea usually, right? But in general, the I, like in, when you have like some you know experimental project or, uh, and you building bicycles there, I found it very useful because if you try to kind of implement from scratch React yourself. Yes, you will not get it to production great level. You will not build you React, to... but you will understand way more about React than anybody yeah. else. Yeah, and it's, it it is it is very beneficial was to understand how the things kind of to understand how the people came to the point that React looks uh, the way it does, right? And it is very very helpful for me, Ben. And even like in FPS. I was using it for a while, more or less, it, 
it was doing the thing I wanted, but uh, a huge um, progress for me in terms of understanding this was when I tried to re-implement, they have the routing library, I think it is a PTS uh, route or something like this for API endpoints, right? And it didn't kind of did what I wanted exactly, so I end up building the thing myself and uh, I do eventually plan to switch to their, using their version because now it does what I need and it is better if I use something that other people use as well. But so, uh, the experience itself for me, doing building it from scratch, I learned a lot and it kind of clicked much more than it uh, was before and this is why I, I find it very, very And I, I think after having tried to build your own prototype of that, you would probably be able to contribute something even to the to the original library if needed to. Yeah. I'm not saying you have to, yes, but if yes. you need to, if you have a bug and nobody else is interested in solving that bug, because of course open source might also mean that the author doesn't give a fuck about your bug, and, and sometimes that happens even in large projects, especially if they are linked to a single company in, in maintenance. Because if it fits comp the company, if it works for the company, it might be buggy for everybody else, but the company is fine. They're not going to prioritize bug fixing for your, for your thing. If you can do it yourself, you are way ahead because you, you, you no longer have limits in, in saying, yeah, okay, fine. I can even fork the project. Might not be the best idea to do. Like you said, I've built mine, then I realize the progressively that the original one has implemented the features that I need. It's better to have one instead of two independent things like we are, for example, doing between effect and FPTS, instead of having effect re-exporting and redoing all of the type classes and all of the stuff, if FPTS gets to the point of being abstract enough to represent the things that we have in effect, then better to use FPTS for those. There's no point whatsoever duplicating the ecosystem for, for everybody. It's way better if it's a single conglomerated solution that everybody uses instead of 500 different minor interpretations. But that is possible only because people such as yourself end up building their own branching off, trying on a personal project, fucking things up five or six times, learning and getting to the point of, yeah, okay, I found a better solution. I want to get back that better solution to the to the ecosystem, or it's so fundamentally different that it deserves its own existence. Because not every time you can you can go back. Like in FPTS2, there would be no way to export effect instances using FPTS2. It's too limited. It literally it's literally possible. But if, if in three it becomes possible, and I'm pretty sure now that that it's going to become possible, then <laughs> way better to, to build one instead of, instead of two. But there are cases where, where you cannot do so, and there are cases where the new library takes over and, and it's a complete fork. 
Well, there, there are not yeah, many, so, many projects. Like if you think even even Linux came out as a as a kind of forking from an ecosystem where they didn't they didn't like the constraints of Sun and and of the Unix and of the Unix ecosystem. So they they decided to to invent their own. And now Linux is dominating absolutely in, in all of the server deployments of the world. So the fact that sometimes something breaks the rules, forks, and builds something better can be can be positive. But 90% of the time it's better to come back. And uh, another example that I had uh, similar to this is even like TypeScript itself, right? We had JavaScript, but at some point we decided, like as a community overall, that having types and having this additional thing on top of like JavaScript is worse enough for it to exist on its own, right? And before it existed, nobody know for sure, and we kind of had, had to try. And this is even interesting, uh, taking into account how you are trying to build uh, TS Plus right now, because you kind of said that it would be even more beneficial to have uh, uh, like additions to the TypeScript itself, right? In my opinion, I saw good things in terms of how you're trying to preserve uh, backward compatibility with TypeScript, right? In a similar way, how TypeScript tries to kind of be able to imp uh, execute ja regular JavaScript, right? And it is it is good in, in, in the case of uh, TS Plus, right? I, I, I don't, uh, to be honest myself, I don't know what the exper experiment kind of will end up being, right? I don't know it, it could, myself. It could, yeah, this is the point, is that it could, maybe it can become something, a thing that will be, have enough value, bring enough value for people and it will kind of stay its own thing, right? Or maybe it can also be something like an experimental project and good ideas from there will eventually uh, find its way into like maybe JavaScript, uh, TC39 specification and stuff like this, right? Or TypeScript, uh, we, we will see, but it is good. This is exactly the point that we need to experiment. We need to see how, how, how it goes, right? We, we need to do, to put our best effort, right? Into doing our experiment. That is an, another and perfect case of a, of a software used for years without knowing the yeah. actual code base. TypeScript itself, and ending up forking TypeScript and having to learn files long, like the there is a file called the checker.ts inside inside the TypeScript compiler that is forty five thousand lines of code of highly mutable nested code. Understanding that was kind of completely insane. But it has been a fun experience. And I ended up implementing the features that I wanted to implement. I think TS Plus in its own is not a project that will be important for the many in general, because there are limitations on the speed, the completion speed. TypeScript is, is slow in itself. And for many people using it in, in front end, the feedback cycle is 
is too slow. And there is absolutely no way of, of optimizing it, which, well, to optimize it within the TypeScript code base. You could build another language, but that's another, that's another discussion. The current limitations make it not viable for, for many. And the design decisions of many build tools, such as SWC, ES build, Babel, and so on and so forth, uh, are not allowing type checking to happen upfront and code, code generation to happen after. So it, it, the TS Plus is kind of limited to a small set of users. But I actually care about TS Plus for two different reasons. One is building libraries, because building libraries does not have the same constraints as building a front-end application. You don't really care about the, the iteration the feedback loop, like if you save a file and it compiles in three seconds or in five, doesn't doesn't change much for for a library. Change this much on code where you have like to change styling of an interface and you want to iterate five five hundred times per second. Okay, you add one pixel less one pixel plus two minus two. Okay, that's okay. Change file and so on and so forth. For that use case, it's not good, but for the library use case, it's it's good. And the other one, which I believe can become some sort of useful for most, that you have used the uh, IOTS, so you are familiar with the with the codec definitions and 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 That's the idea of of generally defining types using using those libraries that allows you to do proper serialization and deserialization with checking of, of data at the edge. It's very noisy to write those things manually. And, and I, you would really like to have what other languages have, which is, for example, you define a type, so like an interface instead of an IOTS codec, and the IOTS codec is derived for you from the compiler. So you don't have to write it manually. But like an IOTS codec, you, you could derive an equality, you could derive a partial order, you could derive a debug instance, you could derive a hashing instance. There are many things that you can derive. And there are languages like Rust, like Haskell, like Scala, where this is native. Well, in TS Plus, we, we can do that. And on your data model, you don't iterate as fast as on an interface. So like in a, in a project that is using TypeScript for 90% of the things, it can still use TS Plus for that 10% that is data modeling and derivation of codecs from, from pure types. For, for that aspect, I think it's so useful to be able to say, okay, derive me a, uh, an IOTS codec for, for this type that I already have defined. Derive me an instance of equal for this type that I already have. That, that aspect might be 
might end up being useful for for many but you pointed out experimentation is the is is where everything starts and even experimenting with building a new language from scratch never built a language but i'm curious now that i've seen a compiler i'm curious to see what could i do in implementing a new language nobody knows where it's gonna go myself too but to to get to the next level of things you need to experiment you need to test test your limits to test your assumptions and and you can do so only if you if you are crazy enough like you said to build a bicycle by yourself and try to use it now of course you also pointed out that it's not good if you try to build a bicycle in in production i would disadvise everybody to build a bicycle and a complete company over the bicycle without before making sure the bicycle works but you gotta build bicycles yeah that's true and now one thing i wanted to ask you i mean a little bit more also abstract question but in general in 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 how you kind of approach the things you're doing do you do you find yourself more often kind of writing code in front of computer and experimenting with it or more thinking about it like can you can you do a significant amount of progress in terms of just thinking pure, pure even without computer or it is it is not as common in in your like day to day habits i can go months without writing a single lines of code yeah. most of yes. the the innovation happens inside here um, but whenever i reach a conclusion like for example the new language that i'm trying to build it's a lot inspired by by typescript clearly and it takes inspiration from other other languages like rust and and, and scala but to even start i had to come up with a design that i think will be will be better coming up with the design is not something you do while typing on a keyboard it's something you you do with with your with your mind thinking about how it might look thinking about how you could implement it thinking about the the architecture of the compiler and so on and so forth only when you when you get to the point of having an idea then i want to test the idea when i'm when i'm improving the assumptions phase then i i go deep code like then i start coding like 10 15 hours per day even uh, so i i could go months without coding and 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 months coding 15 hours per day that obviously works only in if you are building libraries if you are building open source software if you are building those abstract things i i wouldn't see the same approach working on a if you have to build a product in a in an everyday uh, there you have to be more more lean and mean kind of compromising finding pro- progressive compromises and 
and switch more. I mean, you you still have to think before writing a hundred percent, but you can't afford thinking for two months before writing. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, I personally, it's just what I'm interested in, and I find myself kind of my 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 interest in, my interest in all those things that we talked about first comes from the desire to build a, an end product right for the users and in my case it is usually people who use their phone or laptop right it's not my my, my users are not developers usually right and for this i try to always uh, come from those from real problems right and uh, yeah, I try to kind of find a balance between doing actual features which are helpful and at the same time uh, incre increasing the quality of the technical aspects, right? And it, 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 is, it is hard to do that and I'm not... Uh, there, there is improvements for me in terms of finding this balance, right? But yeah. Yeah, but, I, but even there, it's very important yeah. to do both. Because otherwise you get to the point where adding a new feature is way too expensive for you because you're paying the whole accumulated tech debt that you have on the whole project. Yeah. Cleaning up the mess is fundamental. Now you can't yes. like a, a decent amount, a manageable amount of debt. Usually it's there, the, the, it's called technical debt because there's a parallelism with with actual debt, with actual yeah. leverage. Now, if you wait till the, to the, till the point you have all the money to buy a house in cash, you lose a lot of time. You might as well get a mortgage as long as the interest rate and the and the monthly payment are manageable for you. It's a boost on the long-term thing because otherwise every month you pay rent. Now I don't own a house yet, so I'm paying rent. In in this example, I'm the dumb one. <laughs> but the, the the parallelism is is this: a, a good strategy of managing technological debt is fundamental for the for a good outcome of a of a product, and even like. It's not only a balance between the two, but you also asked before how much time you spend non-programming. Like in product land, I see a lot of companies building features directly. Have a chat with your customers before, with your potential customers before you build a feature. Test if they even want that feature. You don't need everything done before testing the assumptions. Otherwise, you end up programming for years and building something that nobody will ever use because it doesn't might make sense for you, but makes sense for for nobody else. It's way better to like partially speak with your customers, then think about the pro the, the product features you want to add, then go back to the customers, and only when you realize, okay, this is actually what I want to build, build it. Like building it should be should be the last thing you you do. It should not be the first thing you do. If you first build it and then show it, 
you're gonna get it wrong 99% of the time. And and this is a hard lesson I've learned myself. I mean, I, I failed company for, for this reason, so. Yeah. It happens to the best of us, let's say. It happens to everybody. Come on. I, I don't know a single entrepreneur that has never failed. Yeah, that 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 that's true actually. And I mean it, it is it is helpful. And the problem is that you know this balance that we talk about, nobody really knows where is the, the line that you need to, 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 to draw, right? It is very very all, all, all it is always very subjective, right? And I do believe that it is important for people to kind of understand and be and have sufficient courage to make the calls when the calls needs to be made, right? But also have some humility to understand that uh, they could be wrong, right? And this is how I try to approach things. I don't want to kind of uh, put the decision making on someone else, right? Just because I don't want to make a call and get it wrong, right? But at the same time, I, I always on the lookout, try to be on the lookout uh, to analyze things if if I'm what I'm doing is not productive anymore and something needs to change, right? It's kind of, and it's good. I can talk very eloquently about all of the things, but uh, the, the, important point, uh, the important thing is that reality will show whether my approach was good or not in like 40 years. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> I don't know for now. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think since like I also wanted, we, we talked about a lot about like engineering, right? But I think th one of the last things I wanted to kind of ask you, because you and I and other people all, all f found functional programming to be useful because it, it allowed them to be to do things more productively in their life, uh, whatever they want to do, right? Have a better resolve, do it in a more uh, in a smaller amount of time. Do you have maybe have you found any other things in your life, maybe outside of programming that also kind of you found very, very uh, important for your productivity, but not many people kind of realize or do them. If you could like talk about one maybe example, if you have. That is an awesome question. It's, I think, yes, uh, there is an important one thing that I, it actually links to something that I deeply care about. And I think from, from some of the words you've you've said in, in the last few sentences, I think we are both kind of passionate about the the world of education and the world of well learning in general. I find it that many people go to universities with the idea that a university should lead to a specific job. They have the expectation that by, by having a degree, by getting a degree, no matter what they actually learn during the, during the degree, that leads to something. And that degree is an absolute requirement for everything you want to do. That is a misconception that has blocked many, many friends of mine 
that I find them constantly then calling more more recently asking how can I enter the job market? I have a PhD. And I'm like, yeah. And what do you want to do? I have a PhD. And it's it's a Euroboros. If you know what a Euroboros is, it's it's the it's a, the snake that ends up eating eating itself. Mm-hmm. I think one of the the best productivity boosts in life that I found was approaching my university time in a way that I was trying to maximize what I wanted to learn for passions I had. I was passionate about finance. I was passionate about mathematics. I already know lots of of programming and, and code because I've been programming since I was 13. So I couldn't care less about following some some like programming courses in, in university. That that to me was totally irrelevant. I wanted to learn the bit, bits of mathematics, but bits of actual mathematics, like a mathematician does it. I'm by far not at the level of any PhD in mathematics, but I know my way around a paper. If I want to actually go deep in any of the topics of mathematics, I can go deep. Doesn't mean they come like that. They, I, I may have to spend months and months and months trying to understand the topics, but I have enough base knowledge where I'm sure about my way around. Then I took a little bit of finance because I was passionate about finance. It's not that everybody has to do the same, but if you want a specific job where the degree is actually heavily required, first, be very sure that you actually want to do that job. Second, go and finish the full degree, get bigger, get graduated and everything else. If you, if what you want to do doesn't really need a degree and for example, software development, I have never been asked for a degree. I have never asked anybody for a degree and if I see a job posting where degrees required, I am 100% sure it's not a company I want to work in because they understood nothing about what software development is about. So the productivity boost, which is totally unrelated to software development, was approaching the university in a, in a way where I actually got what I wanted out of the university and I have lost zero days of my life in, in things that I did, didn't care about at all. It's like a filter for things that you don't care. If you don't care, probably you're never gonna do it. If you don't care, it's not for you. Don't, don't spend time doing things you don't care about. That's, that's the, the, hard, the hard realization that, that not many that I know have, have done. I actually, from my side, I actually, started uh, I was uh, uh, studying in a college right and then I started to work in an industry I, I, I got my job even before I uh, joined a university I was uh, I started work and maybe in a half a year I uh, got in a university and it is very my su- subjective experience and it is very specific to the place where I was born and I was studying but 
those things were in par parallel for me. I learned like a huge amount doing actual work uh, than doing it in university, uh, unfortunately. And, but I'm glad. I I I I am I'm glad that in my life it just happened that I I, I joined like. Because I could wait it like four years and only after that join. But what I did, I actually uh, joined like even before, and it was very helpful for me. And what is even more interesting is that right now, as I continue learning and I, as I have the same amount of interest in terms of general to the knowledge, right? Uh, it, it helps me a lot. And understanding that you can learn by yourself without someone teaching you, it helps a lot. For example, I, I have so much appreciation, for example, to the content that you can find online, even from the top universities like Stanford, MIT, and stuff like this. And and, and I, I'm thinking like, okay, these people pay like 40,000 a year, and I pay zero <laughs> right oh. now. <laughs> one day, one day pay more. But they pay for the degree. They don't pay for those actual courses. Yes, I, I understand. They pay for credential as well. And for the ability to kind of ask a question uh, right there and then, if you don't understand something, to some extent. But uh, credential is the most important thing. I, I agree with you. But right? plus but, questions but still, than results to of... Twitter. Like, you can literally go to Twitter and, and ask questions. You'll find somebody yeah, that answers you with. Yeah, light went yeah. off. Okay, yeah, I think it is time for to wrap up it in some sense, uh, because the technology is is giving up. We are getting, we are, <laughs> we continue strong, but technology is, is struggling. Okay, uh, first of all, uh, thank you a lot for kind of dedicating your attention to me and and uh, having this giving this opportunity to have a conversation with you. We for sure could talk like a lot longer. This this is true from my side, for sure. I hope the same is from, from you as well. And uh, hopefully we will at some point, if you find it interesting, we can do it again at some point. Absolutely. But, but um, uh, we will learn a lot by that point as well, for sure. Uh, and, I, and I do appreciate you sharing uh, your the most the things that you the most interested in and the things that help you a lot with me and with others as well so we can all kind of benefit it and your whatever you have learned over the course of your life it, it just it also helps not only you but a broader community which is which is helpful and in my opinion. and i have to say it's it's been a pleasure to to be here i know this this podcast is very new you're you're working your way into into an idea you have uh, i wish you all the best for the outcome of uh, of this podcast the conversation was pleasant by by any mean i had fun being here and i gladly return whenever whenever you want i hope you have many productive conversations with many people that that you enjoy that you extract as much as possible from many different minds in the world uh, i think you are on the on the right track to to do that not not because you you invited me that that might be a, a bad choice but because you are trying to do it and 
again, thank you, thank you very much for the for the invite, and it's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you.